Our topic this morning is marriage and divorce. You'll have picked that up from the reading. And that means I want to say up front that I'm well aware that this topic is not some theoretical theology, but deeply practical. It is as close to home as it comes. And with one statistical estimate, putting the percentage of marriages that end in divorce at 42%, many of us will have been directly, painfully affected by a divorce or know someone who has. Even for those of us who are married at the moment, I think one of the side effects of lockdown is that we're having to face our home situations for more uninterrupted time and under more pressure than we have ever before. A few may be enjoying that, but many of us will be feeling the strain. Suddenly we wake up to the to the, the surprise, the shock perhaps, that our closest human relationship may have been withering without anyone noticing because of the distractions of normal life. Now it's unavoidably obvious. And so Jesus' teaching this morning may well be a timely word for us. It may be an urgent warning for some where change is needed. In fact, one of my ongoing prayers for the last two months has been that marriages across this church family would emerge stronger from lockdown rather than strained to breaking point. And let me say, if you're not married at the moment, please don't switch off this morning. Rather, please join in praying for those who are married. We've just heard how powerful that is. Praying for those who are married or are considering it. No one lives the Christian life as an island, even in lockdown. And that includes our marriages. Let's pray for each other and let me pray for the Lord's help as we come to his words. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, not just to understand Jesus' words rightly here, but to listen to them, to follow them to accept and obey them. And we do pray particularly, Lord, for marriages that are under real pressure. We pray where hearts of husbands and wives are hardening towards each other or to you. We pray that by your Spirit you would break through. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is a handout online. You can get it on the YouTube page. But actually, the most helpful thing always is to have the Bible open in front of you. So please do have Mark 10 if you can at all. Um, My plan this morning is we're going to notice three things about the question that Jesus gets asked, then three steps in his answer. And then I'm going to close with five survival tips for marriage. So there's a lot to cover. Settle in. Um, Firstly, three things about the question Jesus gets asked. Or should I say, the trap. Jesus gets set. Just have a look at verse 2 with me. Pharisees came up and in order to test Jesus, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? We need to see at the outset that this topic is raised as a trap. Now that's not to say that Jesus' answers won't teach us what he actually thinks about marriage and divorce. They absolutely will. He shoots completely straight here. 
But in the first instance, the question is a setup. It's a, a theological and political ambush. Just think of Keir Starmer crafting a carefully chosen, carefully worded trap at PMQs or the FMQ equivalent. It's a kind of theological noose for Jesus to put himself in. Why did they choose divorce? Three things to notice about the topic they chose. Firstly, divorce, both then and now, was debated. Divorce was debated, and it still is. The particular debate is what are the grounds for divorce? I.e., is it fine to divorce people for really any reason when you get a better offer, when it feels too hard to carry on? Across Roman and Jewish law, everyone agreed that adultery, that is sexual unfaithfulness, was grounds for divorce. But among the Jewish rabbis, there was real debate about whether any other cause was legitimate. One minority view said, no, only sexual adultery is the legitimate grounds. Another, the majority view, a more liberal view, said that actually the man, and yes, it was the man, had legal freedom to divorce his wife for reasons as trivial as Maybe she burnt the dinner. Maybe he'd come across someone more attractive. It was a live debate in Jesus' day, and the Pharisees are trying to drag him into it. In fact, in Matthew's fuller account of this conversation, the question is, is transcribed even more fully as, is it lawful for a man to divorce, divorce his wife for any cause? So a debated topic back then, but actually still a debated topic now both among Christians, is it ever legitimate to remarry, and in wider society, kind of how low should the bar be set, how easy and quick should divorce be. In that area, Scotland has accelerated uh, beyond the rest of the UK in making the divorce process quicker, more easily justifiable, although actually Westminster is now progressing a no-fault divorce bill. So, Jesus... Here's a theological and pastoral hot potato. Which group will you offend? A debated issue then and now. But actually, this test, it's more sinister than just trying to ruin Jesus' popularity. This issue isn't just debated, it's dangerous. I wonder if that's a surprising thought. Just look at who's asking the question here in verse 2. The Pharisees who we heard back in chapter 3, were plotting to kill Jesus with some Herodians. Remember that. In verse 1, Mark gives us a clue of how dangerous this trap might be because Jesus has just moved back into the territory of King Herod. Those who remember anything about King Herod in Mark's gospel may remember that he's a dangerous man. He killed John the Baptist. And he's married to his brother's divorced wife. That's why he killed John the Baptist. This is a topic with enemies in high places. Let me just read a couple of sentences from Mark chapter 6 to fill in a bit of that back story. Listen to this. It was Herod who sent and seized John the Baptist and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he'd married her. For John had been saying to Herod, listen to these words, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him, wanted to put him to death. And she succeeded. 
And here, chapter 10, verse 2, the Pharisees come to Jesus when he's back on Herod's territory and ask the same question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? See why it's dangerous? What's Jesus going to choose? His commitment to the Bible's teaching on marriage or risk losing his head? A dangerous conversation. And we might think, well, that's a million miles away from Scotland today. But actually, it's not. I mean, the losing the head bit is. But some of Jesus' teaching in this passage does run deeply counter to our culture's prevailing ideologies. To stick one's neck out and share the words of Jesus here is to risk the wrath, at least of the Twitterati, if not even the state machinery. Just have a look, verse 6, at Jesus' binary definition of gender. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Or look, verse 7, at his definition of marriage as permanent, one flesh union of one man and one woman. Verse 7, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I wonder how many uh, Christian teachers or students or doctors or speakers would actually fear for the impact on their reputations, even their livelihoods, saying that they believed what Jesus says here. Turns out that Jesus' teaching isn't just dangerous in Herod's Judea, but might actually be in 21st century Scotland, which, which is extraordinary. But thirdly, and most importantly, I want us to notice right up front and acknowledge that this issue isn't just debated, it's not just dangerous, it's deeply personal. Deeply, deeply personal. See, there are a few things as fundamental to our personal lives, our sense of identity, our private life, our, then our sexuality and our relational status. And actually, I think it's precisely that close-to-home nature of the topic that makes it so debated and so dangerous. John the Baptist was touching a nerve right at the heart of Herod and Herodias. He was calling them to account, calling them to repent, calling them to change their ways in the most personal of life choices, who they slept with, uh, who they married, what they did with dissatisfaction in an existing marriage. I actually think it's the heat that comes from there that causes the debate and the danger politically. How dare you? How dare you control my freedom? How dare you suggest that what I'm doing wrong? How dare God stick his nose into my personal business? It's deeply personal. But as Christians, of course, we listen to Jesus, even when it's personal. We don't pick and choose. And I'm conscious this morning that Mark 10 may well unearth significant problems that require real repentance. Which means my, my big opening plea, and I'll repeat this at the end, is, is if Jesus is teaching here, or if just lockdown circumstances have been a wake-up call, that things are not right, or, or if your marriage is in a kind of state of permanent warfare, or perhaps more worryingly, a cold, hard truce, please talk to someone. Please. I know it's not easy. It's never easy. It's never easy to admit we need help, to admit that things aren't well at home, especially for Christians. 
It's especially not easy at the moment in lockdown when, it, when that actually involves picking up a phone or sending a message. I have to say, as a pastor, the thing I miss most in lockdown is the quiet chats on a Sunday. They're just bumping into someone and seeing if things are okay. But please ask for help. It's not too late to change course. So that's, that was verse 2. The three aspects of this topic, debated, dangerous, deeply personal. But let's get to Jesus' answer, which begins in verse 3. It actually begins with a question. He answered them, what did Moses command you? It's actually a great comeback to their trap. So often Jesus turns the tables. Okay, guys, you're legal experts. Surely you know the law. And they do. Verse 4, referring to a short passage in Deuteronomy 24, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So there you have it. Why are you asking me? Jesus could have said next. He could have left it there. Nice try, guys. You'll need to find something better than that to catch me out. But he doesn't stop there. Because actually Jesus really cares about marriage. Wants to set their hearts straight. Wants to show how high God's view of marriage actually is even if it costs him. So let's work through his answer. There are three parts. Here's the first one. Provision for divorce is required because of your hard hearts. This is verse 5. Provision for divorce is required because of your hard hearts. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So yes, we know Deuteronomy 24 describes a, a certificate of divorce. That is, God did provide a a civil legal mechanism to manage the fallout of broken marriages in Israel, to protect the victims. But make no mistake, divorce is not how things are meant to be. In fact, if human hearts were not sinful, if we didn't have hard hearts, then the tragedy of divorce would never happen. Just think about it. It shouldn't be the case that those who've committed to each other for life, chosen to commit to each other for life, made solemn covenant promises of lifelong faithfulness, that they'd walk away. Particularly here where husbands were holding the significant power in their society, they should not be discarding a wife just because they prefer someone different. It simply should not happen which makes it all the more shocking that it does. And in big numbers, one more recent statistical analysis suggested it might be 35 rather than 42% of marriages that end in divorce. But either way, what does it say about our human hearts, about our human fallenness, that it turns out sometimes we can't even stand to live with the person we've chosen to commit to? that we struggle so much to keep the most serious or public promises we've ever made, it tells us we have a heart problem. God knows that all too well. That's why he provided some legal provision, and particularly to protect the victim. In the case of Israel, a defenseless wife from being further exploited But notice Jesus doesn't just describe this as a historic problem back then. Look at how he points the finger in verse 5 directly 
at these religious men. Jesus said to them, because your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Your hardness of heart, he says to them. He says, this commandment was precisely written to minimize the damage caused to women by people like you. Powerful religious men exploiting your position. And we might think, well, hang on, that's a bit harsh to just go straight into the Pharisees like that. But actually, we know from verse 2 that they're not actually wanting to understand God's will for relationships. They're not wanting to invest in strengthening a marriage. They're not asking so they can handle the fallout of a complex pastoral crisis. No, they just want to get rid of Jesus. They're just exploiting this most personal and painful of subjects as the latest ruse to get rid of him, which means hard hearts is the right description for them. And we must be careful it doesn't describe us. What is a hard heart? Quite simply, a heart that doesn't care what God says. A heart that stops changing in response to the challenge and encouragement and command of God. A heart that says, well, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to find an interpretation that justifies what I want. That's what the Pharisees were doing. No longer coming to Jesus to hear what he had to say, but coming with their own agenda. A way to justify their own position. Get rid of him. Perhaps even get rid of a wife, and Jesus exposes their hearts are hard. They've forgotten the original intention for marriage. And this brings us to the second part of Jesus' answer. God's intention for marriage is permanent union of man and woman. Now I realise that is no longer the definition of marriage in secular Scottish culture, as I mentioned at the beginning, But Jesus says this is the creator's intention. The maker of humanity defines marriage as a public leaving and cleaving, uh, joining of one man and one woman into a new single one flesh union. I'm aware there are lots of questions that could arise from that. We we haven't got time to tackle them now, but please do ask them. Um, Verse 6, Jesus says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let man not separate. The point is clear, isn't it? Jesus puts his weight, divine weight, behind Genesis 1.27. God made them male and female. And then Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. He explains that, verse 8, this does create a mysterious union, a real, deep, significant unity. It's not just a legal or social decision. It's something where God gets involved, a physical, emotional, and spiritual union. And then he gives his application, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Or in other words... Never cause a divorce. Never cause a divorce. Never be the cause of a divorce. Don't be someone who contributes to the tearing apart of a marriage union, something God has joined together. To which we might say, well, hang on, Jesus. Are you really being that blunt? 
We'll see the disciples um, asking that in verse 10 and 11. And I do need to say, um, in a broken and sinful world, sometimes on rare occasions, divorce may be a tragic necessity. Even for a believer, there can be such a thing as a legitimate divorce. Because sometimes the seriousness of one party's sin in marriage, whether in desertion or adultery or abuse, Sometimes the covenant is, is so severed. Biblically, there can be a legitimate divorce to protect a victim. And of course, we should care deeply for those in our church family um, who, are, um, who have experienced divorce in their past. But make no mistake, God is anti-divorce. He puts it as strongly in Malachi as he hates divorce. It's not his intention And so Jesus has this crystal clear, very blunt application. What God has joined together, let no man separate. The complexities of personal life mean lots of these things are best talked about one-to-one. But we do as a whole church family need to take seriously this direct command. Who of us needs to hear it? Well, all of us whether we're married or not, it's all of our business to support and strengthen rather than neglect or weaken the marriages in this church family. As Andy put it, we can be praying for each other. And don't underestimate the power of that. More powerful than a chili pepper, as he said, or a plug socket. Prayer is powerful. Sometimes it's the only thing that can rescue a marriage. Likewise, encouragement, support, Honesty and a willingness to say how things are really going. A a guard, a a taking watch against sin, as we've heard the last three weeks, putting it to death. And again, that's for all of us. We should never entertain any, any kind of coveting another woman's husband or another man's wife, even in the privacy of our own minds. Or we should never engage in flirtation or exclusive emotional intimacy with another man's wife or woman's husband. We shouldn't do anything to jeopardize what God has put together. Verse 9 is a command for us all to take seriously. Unless we think maybe Jesus is just overstating it to take the Pharisees down a notch, just look at what happens from verse 10. This is our third part of Jesus' answer. In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. Not surprised they did. I think it will raise a lot of questions, uh, specific questions, and also the Really, Jesus? Question. But if they were asking that one, verse 11, he said to them, even more starkly, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Again, Jesus' point is stark. Even if there has been a legal divorce, To remarry is to commit adultery against one's first wife or husband. Now again, it is important to note, in Matthew 19, Jesus does point out this does not include those who've been uh, victims of adultery. In 1 Corinthians 7, uh, we hear it doesn't include Christians who've been deserted uh, by spouses who, who don't believe and want to walk away. In those cases, the original marriage covenant is effectively broken. And while reconciliation is still desirable to be encouraged, it just may not be possible. And the victim's free to remarry. 
So those specific, those limited exceptions are being assumed here. But Jesus doesn't mention them because his focus is not on the loopholes, but on showing how serious the intention, God's intention for marriage really is. I was looking at solicitors' websites this week. One described divorce as an opportunity for a fresh start. Jesus describes it as a tearing apart of a union that God's made. Which does leave us with a sobering and stark challenge. For those who are considering marriage, who'd like to be married, this is a reminder to take seriously the decision about who to marry and why. We're seeing lots of that in Proverbs in the evenings. We should seek wisdom from God's word, guidance from those around us. But of course, for those of us who are married, Jesus' words are a stark wake-up call. For any who are on the brink of breakdown, well, urgent help is needed. Please talk to others if you're not already. Actually, I think for all married couples in this church family, even if we feel things aren't going too badly, it is well worth, given the seriousness of what Jesus says here, it's well worth taking some time to proactively work on strengthening relationships, to take some preventative medicine to keep us from this outcome. And so for our last few minutes, I want to give us five survival tips for married couples, five things that the rest of us could pray that married couples would apply. Firstly, don't be surprised that marriage can be hard. Jesus teaches on the permanence of marriage so strongly, so bluntly, because he knows our hearts. He knows how hard it can be. He knows exactly what some of us are going through. He sees it all. He knows it all. In confirming that there's no easy exit to covenant commitments, biblical marriage creates a safe environment to work through the difficulties, the many difficulties that come along. And of course, difficulties do come. I know it can be a real shock if we've had our kind of relationship expectations calibrated by romantic comedies or by married friends who are pretending that things are always good. We can have an idealized view of what marriage is like until you get in one. But the reality is, when you put two sinners together as one, under one roof, it is often difficult. We've been seeing that over the last few weeks, that humans have sinful hearts, and even Christians continue to grapple with sinful hearts. It turns out we often treat worst the people we're closest to. Why? Because that's where we let down our guard, where we put down the face. Don't be shocked if you discover that your spouse is not quite the person you thought you were marrying, but a more selfish version, a more sinful version, and therefore a more annoying version than you thought. And don't be shocked when in the mirror of marriage you discover that about yourself. I know I've discovered that about myself. But it's not just two sinful hearts that every married couple has to grapple with. We grapple with a fallen world, all its sorrows and struggles, financial pressures, employment pressures, illness pressures, caring for parents pressures, serving the gospel pressures, care for children or longing for children pressures. 
mental health pressures. There is a lot to cope with. Firstly, then, don't be surprised when marriage is difficult. Secondly, don't just ignore the problems. Don't just ignore the problems. Lots of people will say communicating honestly in a marriage is so important. It's the only way problems can be dealt with. It's the only way sins can be forgiven rather than resentment and bitterness and distance growing. But of course, if there have been years, even decades of bad patterns built up, it can be hard to stop and change the patterns, hard to even discuss what's wrong. Sometimes it's easier just to anesthetize the pain, the frustration, the hurt, the dissatisfaction, whether it's looking elsewhere, throwing yourself into work or the kids or hobbies or escapist entertainment or shopping, whether it's dulling the pain with substances or turning to to the deceit of pornography or or just indulging in imaginary daydreams of what if things were different, what if I was with that person. But marriage, says Jesus, is a lifelong union. Compensating those ways is not a Christian response. In fact, idolatry or pornography or coveting, it actually just adds more acid to the dysfunction. Don't ignore the problems. Face them. Talk to each other. Talk to someone. Which means, thirdly, making time to talk. There are lots of ways to find time to talk together. Um, Actually, our best venue for talking used to be long car journeys. (laughs) So lockdown spoiled that one. But but invest time talking together, sharing things together. I used to think services like Netflix were really good for marriages uh, because we don't have any arguments now about whether to watch a superhero movie or The Great British Bake Off. Jesse and I can be on kind of separate couches with separate screens and our headphones in, doing our own thing. Actually, I'm now wondering whether that means we're missing out on time to talk. Likewise with food, do we try and find times where we can sit together, eat together, talk together, or is it just grabbing something solo on my own schedule because there's just too much work to do or too much stuff to watch or too many children to hose down? Do we ever stop and chat? In particular, do we ever talk through the fights we have? Do we ever take time outside of the heat of the moment to ask what was really going on there? To talk through the kind of typical dance we get into when we have an argument. And it's usually the same moves, isn't it? To discuss where is that heat coming from and what could we do to break the cycle of saying things we regret? So firstly, don't be surprised it's hard. Secondly, don't ignore the problems. Thirdly, make time to talk about them. And fourthly, and this is the bit you don't really get in self-help marriage books, but it's actually the most important thing. When we do talk, are we willing to apply the real biblical gospel? That is the gospel that God graciously forgives genuinely serious sin. That is, when I repent, he commits to not holding it against me. I don't know about you, it's so easy to justify myself, to to not admit I'm in the wrong, especially in a marital uh, discussion. Jesus tells me my heart is full of problems, full of selfishness, so I need to say sorry a lot more, to acknowledge that I let Jesse down. And alongside that, we need to 
commit to genuine forgiveness, gracious forgiveness, commit to not hold something against our spouse that they've asked forgiveness for, which isn't easy, especially if it felt like the hundredth time. But God's forgiven us far more than that. It wasn't easy, Jesus paying our debts on the cross. And so it's healthy to keep short accounts, to not let the sun go down on anger, to be willing to commit to a reset. In fact, just very practically, Jesse and I, for a number of years now, we've operated in our marriage with an imaginary button. Either of us can press it. Uh, when we're saying sorry, it, it's, a, it's a let's start over button. We actually imagine pressing it. We hit it often, sometimes multiple times an hour, if the day started really badly. It is a gospel button. It, 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 it's a reminder that Jesus wipes the slate keen, and we must be willing to. And actually, we're now having to use it with the kids as well, and for ourselves as well as them. So don't be surprised it's hard. Don't ignore the problems. Make time to talk and apply the real gospel of grace when you do. And fifthly, finally, take seriously the responsibility of serving our spouses sexually. We're going to think more about this tonight with Proverbs 5. But it's clear from there and from 1 Corinthians 7 that actually taking seriously our one flesh responsibility to one another um, is a key way of strengthening marriages. Again, as a single man, I can remember thinking, why on earth does anyone need a command about that? But of course, as married life goes on and pressures crowd in, if children appear, if energy disappears, if illness strikes... It's actually really challenging to be faithful and servant-hearted, other-person-centered in that area. Our time is gone, and I'm aware I've raised a lot of issues, and that may have triggered many questions in our minds or our marriages. Please talk together about them as married couples. Please talk as a church family. Please send us questions uh, to talk through. But as I draw to a close, let me say, if this topic has left you slightly reeling, if, if, if you're aware, like me, you haven't actually done a great job of being faithful to Jesus or your spouse in this area, aware that that same selfishness, hard-heartedness lurks in your own heart as I see it lurking in mine, well then in some ways that's exactly the right place to be. See, at this point, Jesus in Mark's Gospel is explaining to his disciples that we do need him to die for us and need his help to live in suffering, sacrificial service. We'll see next week that we all come to Jesus empty-handed. We don't come to church all smartened up, pretending nothing's gone wrong. We come looking for help. And so let me close by sharing something I sometimes do after an argument at home. It's, I, this is something I do with myself if I'm bristling with self-righteousness. I imagine myself having a conversation with the Lord Jesus that goes like this. Jesus says, Rog, let's have a chat about how you're behaving as a husband. Do you know what I've asked you to do as a Christian husband? I say, yes, Ephesians 5, I'm supposed to love Jesse just as you love the church and laid your life down for her. 
Jesus, do you remember in what circumstances and how long you promised to do that for? And I say, yes, for better, for worse, in sickness and health, for richer and poorer, till death do us part. And then I imagine him asking me, can you honestly say that characterizes how you're behaving right now? And you know what I say back? I start saying, but, 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 she she did this, she said that, she's not delivering this. Jesus says, I'm not asking about her, I'm asking about you. The rest is between me and her. The question for you is, can you honestly say you're loving your wife as I love the church? And so, undone, by the grace of Jesus, I, I swallow my pride. Sometimes it takes a while. I go and say sorry, and we get out that reset button to press it again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray for your help. We pray for help that the marriages in this church family, with all the pain and difficulties, with all our sin in our hearts and our past, we pray that you would strengthen them. We pray that marriages here would be a tiny picture of your faithfulness in the way that Jesus loves his church. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.